Hello and welcome to GeoSpeaks podcast. GeoSpeaks is a podcast about how geography impacts our lives. Today we will be talking about the power of clean water. We will be focusing on clean water and its effect on healthcare and food security. Today we have a guest, Miranda Clark, who has worked in many countries providing clean drinking water and healthcare services. Miranda, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you go to school and what did you major in? Oh, hi. So um, as you can probably guess from my accent, I'm, I wasn't born in the US. I was actually born in London uh, in the UK. And I studied manufacturing engineering at Brunel University. I was one of six women uh, on a course of 36 students. And um, in my last year at university, my sister, who was studying Spanish and French, went to Ecuador to study Spanish and I went to visit her. And that trip changed my life and inspired me to study soil and water engineering as a, in a master's course later on. And so that's how I became a soil and water engineer. So I guess that leads into our next question. Um, how did you get where you are now? Uh, as in like, what did you do to become a soil and water engineer? And with the work you've done, do you think... Um, do you think it was worth it to get where you are now? Well, when I was at school, I loved sciences. I really did. I loved biology, chemistry, physics, and I loved maths. But I was also a really practical person. So I thought that um, doing engineering would be a good combination of, of the two. In fact, I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, I really didn't like manufacturing engineering, and I almost gave up on it. But I'm very grateful for it because it actually set me on this path and um, I came on this journey, basically. Um, so I actually call myself a reformed engineer and I haven't really used my technical skills uh, specifically on water and engineering since the late 1990s. Um, most of the work that I've done has been um, after doing some initial work on uh, water uh, systems. I then got more involved in management of a variety of projects, many of which had a component of water in them, um, but basically managing projects and programs and people in order to deliver services um, in a variety of places. Nice. Um, so what got you interested in working for non-governmental organizations? Well, definitely that trip to Ecuador when I was just 22 years old was an amazing opportunity. Um, I traveled in Europe a reasonable amount, but I'd never left Europe. So actually going to Latin America was, was that was the first time outside Europe and it was an amazing experience for me. And even there, though we were only there for two weeks, there was something... Um, I remember sitting in a bus, uh, traveling around the Andes, looking out the window and just seeing things that were just so different that I'd never had any uh, notion of and thinking, I wonder if I could put my engineering skills to use here. And so that's, that's how I kind of moved into the soil and water engineering field. And I was very lucky in that the university that where I chose to study had a, um, a small charity run by the students that identified projects overseas where people like me could get their first overseas experience. 
And it was through them that I went to work with an organization called the Shawcross Aid Program for Highland Indians in Guatemala. And um, I spent nine months there in total building water supplies um, in very remote communities. And I really just fell in love with the country and with that kind of work. And although when I came back to, to England after that, I did look at working in other areas and some consultancy firms and engineering firms, my heart just wasn't really in, in it. And um, from then on, I've really, I've worked for one academic organization, but basically since then I've only worked for non-government organizations. Um, and um, I just find that the mission and the values of these organizations are very important to me. And um, they're very supportive places to work. Um, and I've just been very, very lucky. And it's, uh, I haven't wanted to work anywhere else, basically. So kind of a different question that I just came up with. Um, has, you mentioned you went to Ecuador and then um, in earlier, uh, conversation that we had you had mentioned that you went to um, Central America a lot did going to Ecuador make you want to go to Central America more definitely yes I think having um, had the opportunity to go to Ecuador when I was looking at the different projects um, that I that I could have applied for I know we had one in the Philippines there were some in Africa um, but the one in Guatemala really caught my eye partly because it was about a drinking water system, which was the area that I was most interested in technically, but partly because um, I had, uh, you know, had some exposure to Latin America and I thought working in Central America would be um, uh, a, a more familiar way for me to start out, basically. Interesting. So did you go... Um anywhere outside of Central America or did you just keep in Central America for the time? Okay, uh, well, when I left, after I graduated, um, I spent nine months in Guatemala and that was in 1992. Um, then I came back to the UK and I worked at the university where I'd been studying for a year. And then I managed to get um, an, another uh, trip to Nicaragua again through the college that I was that I was working at and that's where I met my husband Rob in Nicaragua in 1994-95. After that uh, we came back to the UK for a short while and then we went to Laos in Southeast Asia and we spent 18 months there. Um, now in both Guatemala and Nicaragua we had been working on water supply projects, very similar projects in rural communities. When I went to Laos I was working uh, on a primary healthcare project, again, in a very, very remote community right in the south of the country. Um, but and one component of that is water, because without clean water, there are so many um, health impacts in terms of um, diseases and waterborne illnesses. Um, also, for example, it's important with um, mosquitoes as well, that you have clean areas so that you're trying to minimize the the, um, the places where mosquitoes can um, uh, grow, well, can, can breed. Um, so although we were working with local hospitals and primary healthcare facilities, we were also working on water issues, infiltration and that kind of stuff. After Laos, we moved to Angola for two years in 1998. Um, and then there I was working on an environmental health project. Um, and that was in an area 
that was emerging from a very violent period of civil war. And so there were a number of camps with people who were trying to get back to their homes, um, but there was a desperate need for um, water and sanitation. And so I was managing a project there. Um, I also worked on a human rights project in Angola. Um, and I think one thing that happened throughout my career overseas is I started off working on things in a very technical capacity. But um, as I got more experience, I came to see things from a rights-based perspective uh, so that it was actually people's rights to have access to water rather than a need. And I think this is a movement that was that was happening within the NGO community and uh, the UN as well at that time. Um, so I, I've, towards the end of my two years in Angola, we were actually working on purely just human rights projects in terms of uh, monitoring viola violations and um, helping local organizations build capacities as well. And then the last, my last overseas experience where I lived uh, was in Rwanda. And we spent three years there working on um, civil society strengthening projects and rights-based um, projects as well. And uh, although not specifically working on water, um, many of the um, issues do relate to water and access to water and protection of water sources and those kind of things. So that's a quick overview of where I've lived overseas. Um, since uh, 2004, I've been based in the UK and for five years and the US for the last 10 years. And I've continued to work in this area, but from... Uh, from the head office of organizations like uh, CARE and Oxfam. And I've been supporting in, in the UK. I worked on the Latin America program, supporting projects in Latin America. Um, and more recently here in the US, I've been supporting a number of initiatives with Oxfam in Guatemala and in Cambodia. So that's my, a quick summary of, of, my, of my career so far. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned that you lived in um, the different places where you worked. What surprised you the most about living in those communities? Ooh, um, very, they, they were so different. Um, a shock in terms of coming from, um, from England, for example. Um, I think the thing, there are many things that you, many impressions that you're left with after having had the um, luxury of living and working overseas in, in other people's communities, being a guest in their community. The, the generosity of these communities was, was overwhelming. Um, I remember in Nicaragua, the families, we lived in a small village and it was, we were only building a small system, but the families would take it in turns to feed us every single day. I think we provided them with rice and beans, but they cooked them for us and, and we ate in their houses. And they were always so generous with what they had. Um, and it really struck me, um, I mean, they, they had so little, but they were so proud to be able to have us in their homes, to entertain us, to feed us. Um, and uh, we were very lucky to have those experiences. And I think the thing that sort of, one of the things that struck me most was um, the different cultures and how quickly you can adapt to them. I remember we spent 18 months in Laos, which is a, a very um, uh, 
modest country. Women need to be have their arms fully covered and they wear long skirts that go down to their shins, sometimes close to their ankles. And um, there's a deep politeness and respect and reverence um, there. And it takes a while to get used to um, behaving like this. But if you want to get things done, you have to follow local customs and local practices. And we were there for 18 months, which is quite a long time. And again, in a very remote area. So we weren't, there was no exposure to television and, and that kind of stuff. It was really quite remote. Very shortly after leaving Laos, we moved to Angola. And Angola is, was a former Portuguese colony, um, very hot and uh, very vibrant, a, very active, very emotional, very fiery, a very different kind of culture to Laos. And I remember on some of my first few days there, we would go and um, socialize in an area where there were lots of, it was right on the beach as well. There were, there were bars on the beach and stuff. And we would go and um, uh, eat there in the evenings. And I remember being shocked to see um, waitresses in little spaghetti strap tops and these tiny little shorts that they were walking around. I mean, these days in, in the, you know, you wouldn't blink twice at seeing that. But that transition going from Laos to Angola in a relatively short period of time, I got so used to the modesty of Laos that seeing this, the, this, the culture in, in Angola was a shock to me. And I, I hadn't expected to be so deeply affected by the communities that I was living in and to have absorbed um, uh, some of the, the, the cultural aspects. So that surprised me. All right, so have, did you by any chance have the opportunity to go back like twice to an area? Cause that kind of leads into our next question. Yeah, I did. I mean, I've, I've been to Guatemala a few times since working there and uh, Rob and I did go back to one of the towns where we worked, um, where we were based but only a couple of years afterwards. Um, I'm not, I, it's hard to say what the lasting impact of our work has been. Um, one of the things that we tried very hard to do in all our work was to work with local organizations. So really we were facilitating rather than doing everything. And so much of this work requires that there's a, a sustainable management committee or team or process or something that's going to keep the uh, the project alive after after you leave. So, for example, when we were building water systems, um, the communities would decide that they were going to form a committee, and they would have people in that committee would be trained up on how to maintain the system, how to change the washer on a faucet, for example, how to repair a leak in a pipe. And in order to do that, they needed funds to do that. So they would collect money from each of the community members um, so that they had some resources in order, in order to buy the spare parts. Um, we also did training around um, environmental health and hand hygiene, things that are so important now with COVID-19. Um, and we often trained um, community kind of organizers, activists who would go around and and train local communities to, to promote good hygiene. Um, later on, as in some of the other projects where we were working, very often we partnered with local NGOs. So there might be an international NGO like Oxfam or CARE partnering with 
um, an association that had been set up by a group of Rwandans or a community in Angola, for example. And these organizations really were were the drivers for the programs and projects that, that they were um, uh, implementing. Sometimes we also worked with the government as well. In Laos, for example, the primary healthcare project that we supported was actually with the government-run hospital. And part of what we were doing was training of doctors and nurses. We were also identifying um, key pieces of equipment and importing those into the country. Uh, we were helped setting up clinics, uh, providing mosquito nets and, and those kind of things. So, um, though, you know, those hospitals still function now. Um, and I hope that many of the initiatives that we were working on are, are still going. And I'm sure they would be because, for example, the Laotian government uh, still needs to run those hospitals and healthcare centers. Um, so, um, and, and they, they, they're now responsible for overseeing um, the work that was, that was done while we were there and has continued since we left, for sure. So did you have any goals while you were there? Did you accomplish them? And if you were to go back, what would you do again? Um, I mean, most of, I think, probably in the early stages when I was in Guatemala and Nicaragua, the goals were less specific. Um, they, these were smaller organizations that had been set up um, and really only worked in one location. Um, by the time we were working in Laos, Angola and Rwanda, working with a bigger organization, they have uh, quite a strong uh, project and program design process with very clear goals that needed to be measured and monitored and reported on regularly, if not quarterly, definitely annually. Um, and so there were times when we were clearly successful in achieving, for example, distribution of a certain number of nets or training of number of people. Um, so I think we were able to achieve those kind of things. Whether we were actually able to really um, increase the standard of living in the long term, I think was very much out of our control. In most of the places where we worked, we were working in communities that had been ravaged by decades of underinvestment or very brutal civil wars. Guatemala, for example, was emerging from um, decades of fighting and the communities that we were working in, the indigenous communities were, were targeted very often by the army. Um, similarly, in Angola, a civil war had been raging for a long time, fighting over control of access to oil and diamonds. And in fact, while we were there, the ceasefire broke and the country erupted, re-erupted in, in war. Rwanda was emerging, was I think when we were there, it was 10 years after the genocide um, and huge um, impact of, of that still felt very deeply by individuals and by many organizations that had lost so much um, in, during the genocide. Um, so did we accomplish our goals? Um, I think there were times when we helped to rebuild some communities, set them off on a path that was more sustainable, but it was such a small contribution. Um, and we were, 
a very small cog in a huge machine and so much really depended upon uh, the government um, and how they were, what their plans for um, the future were really. That is definitely, um, it's definitely uh, inspiring to hear that, you know, you went and you still, like, even though you couldn't do all of it, you still did some of it, which is great. Yeah. Uh, what was the most exciting thing you learned while you were there? Um, wow. Um, exciting thing. Um, I think each place where I lived and worked left, changed me in some way. Um, I'm not sure whether exciting thing would be the, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that excitement would be the emotion that I would take away from each of those experiences. Um, I think I learned humility. I, um, I think I went in thinking that there was a technical solution to every problem, but I left, I think, understanding how complex these issues are. And it's not a quick fix. Uh, there have been decades, if not centuries, of injustices which need to be unpicked and unraveled in order to um, make long-lasting change. And that change really has to come from the community. External experts swooping in, doing their thing, won't really help. Um, and it's so much more about... Um, people taking control over their, their, their futures. And, and that's really hard if a government isn't um, open to enabling that. Um, for example, working in Laos was a very different experience from, say, working in, well, indeed, actually, Rwanda has similar issues as well. But in Laos, it was a communist government that was very hierarchical and very controlling. Um, so there was very little kind of freedom uh, for the individual there. And so a lot was being done for the good, the broader, bigger good. Um, somewhere like Angola, where there was huge corruption, um, very difficult to imagine how soon the average Angolan was actually going to benefit from all the aid money that was pouring into the country. So... Sorry, I'm, I'm not really talking about exciting things, but I think more like lessons learned, really, which mm -hmm. is not, not necessarily exciting things. But, you know, I we made many friends when we were working overseas and um, definitely, uh, personally, I've been, I've been shaped and molded by, by my experiences. Uh, and I, but I, again, I feel very lucky. It's, it's an amazing opportunity to have. Um, and... Uh, I, I think I probably got more out of it um, personally than the amount of time and effort that I put in. You know, it's affected me more probably. Mm -hmm. So what was your best memory from all of your travels? I think there has to be something, there always is something very special about the first place that you go to. And when I worked in Guatemala, it was... Um, the mo the, it's the, been the most memorable experience. I lived and work with lived and worked with three or four other students from college, and we all lived in the same um, house. We worked together every single day, 
for about six months. At one point, we lived in a community uh, for three months solid without leaving it. And we never saw another foreigner the entire time that we were there. Um, it was those memories are very precious um, to have the opportunity to live so um, so deeply in a culture and a community so different from your own. Um, and so going back to Guatemala, which I have been lucky enough to do several times since then, always um, makes me extremely happy, even though the situation in Guatemala is, is no better than it was when I was there in the 90s, um, if not actually considerably worse, because the, the difference between the rich and the poor has really increased since I was there. Um, and the violence now in the capital city is, is um, really quite bad. But I still have a very soft spot for Guatemala. And, um, you know, I, uh, I've really enjoyed working there, made some great friends and still keep in contact with, with a number of people from there. So I think overall Guatemala is, is probably the favorite place where I've ever worked. So um, is there anything else that you think is important for us to know um, as students or young people? So you're particularly interested in the impact of water from on health and um, food security, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Um, can I ask, like, what, um, what, what other issues have, have you been looking at in, in relation to this? Um, we looked a lot, um, especially earlier in the year, um, at South Sudan. Uh -huh. And we read A Long Walk to Water, and we talked about, like, how the... Um, the groups they didn't necessarily they didn't have health care or anything and they really didn't have food security in refugee camps mm -hmm. um and how you know if they had water they could have had um different they could have had better sanitation yeah. this is all kind of throughout the entire year um they could have had better sanitation and they could have like actually cooked their food which would have you know, increased yeah. food security and also watered their crops. Yeah. That's kind of what we we're talking about the entire year. Um, oh, wow. Sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think water is still an issue and probably going to increase being an issue just because of uh, climate change. Um, there are many things that, you know, we take for granted in terms of watering our, our lawns, for example, our yards and golf courses which use up a tremendous amount of water um, for, for just recreational purposes. But when it's really a matter of life and death, I think it takes on a very different, um, takes on a, 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 a different um, importance. Um, I think it's still important. I think it's also worth considering how important it is for women because mostly it's women that go and collect the water. And this, particularly if you're a young girl, means that you um, may have to miss school because you are expected to do a lot of the work in the home as well. Um, so in addition to the, the health and the food security issues, providing access to clean drinking water that is easy access and not walking five miles um, with you know, drugs of water on your head is really important to help women um, and young girls continue education and um, work for equality as well. So 
Um, I think the impact of water, although important on health and food security, has much broader impacts as well. Thank you for speaking with us today and telling us about all of your um, projects and travels. Your topic is very eye-opening and insightful. Thank you for showing us how your project ran and how you let locals help better their community and how it benefits them. We are excited to share this information with our classmates as it is very important to learn about and teach the community so we can help de less developed countries. So thank you for joining us today. Um, thank you, Katrina. It was lovely to speak to you. It really was. And I hope your, your class um, is able to access this. It must be difficult if you're not actually physically in school at the moment. But um, thank you for reaching out. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for talking, us, talking to us today. Okay. Bye.